Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the, to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with you fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And so the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and came and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the wood and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you respond when the Lord works and when the Lord speaks? In, uh, in our era of God's history, that is, this time period of after Jesus' death and his resurrection, where we no longer have apostles or prophets who are speaking the very words of God, when I say, how the Lord speaks, what I'm referring to mostly are God's infallible words in the Bible. And so now I'm not suggesting that we don't see God's work in the everyday or that God never prompts people in certain ways. But the point is that only God's word is guaranteed to be His very words. So we, we don't have to uh, search among the mountains or the valleys to try and find prophets to see whether they can tell us what God is saying. No, God has taken all of those prophets and the words that they spoke that He wanted us to have a record of are now all written in that book, the Bible. That is God's Word. And so, let me ask you again, how do you respond when the Lord works and when He speaks? In our passage this morning, we see uh, Elisha encounter three groups of people, all who respond to God's work and to His words in different ways. And so, uh, as we explore this passage today, uh, we're not going to go through it in chronological order, we're not going to go through as Elisha himself went through, but uh, we're going to go in the order of the way that each group responded. And so, as you can see there from the title, we have delinquents, we have doubters, and we have dwellers, and they are the three points, headings of this morning. So with our Bibles open, with our hearts open, let's explore this passage together. Firstly, with the delinquents. Verse 
Now, the, the term delinquent is usually described, uh, usually used to describe a young person who commits a lot of crime. And so that makes it a somewhat appropriate word to describe uh, this group. But the term delinquent can also refer to somebody who, just more generally, who has failed in what they are supposed to do, failed in the commandments or, or, or instructions that they're supposed to pay attention to. And that is certainly true, not only of these boys that we meet in this passage, but also of the adults around them. Let's read verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. As we heard and saw last week, Elisha uh, does almost the same trip that he and Elijah took a few days earlier, but this time in reverse. So as we saw last week, Elisha And Elisha came from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then across the Jordan River where Elijah was taken up into heaven. And now Elisha is on his way back. And so we've seen how he's come back over the river through Jericho and we're up now to Bethel. Commentator Ian Proven describes Bethel as a city that provides the focal point for Israel's apostasy. That is, their, their turning away from God. This is where, the city of Bethel, where idolatry and turning away from the Lord was at its most concentrated in Israel. So it's, it's unsurprising, really, that while he's on his way, a group of boys come out of the city to jeer at him, to mock him, to insult him. Now, how old were these boys? Uh, we don't know. The Hebrew term can refer to something, uh, to anything from young children, as young as perhaps some of the children and some of the boys we have here this morning, to young men. Some have argued that this text should actually be read as youths, not as small boys, and that's certainly possible. Uh, But given the fact that the original text actually says the word small, it might be perhaps more likely that these boys were on the younger end of the scale. Now, how big was this group? Uh, We also don't know. (laughs) Uh, We know for sure that there were at least 42, but there were likely more than that. And so above that big, even of primary school kids, could have been potentially a physical threat to Elisha. Now, whatever the size or the age of these delinquents, the moral difficulty of this passage still remains. And that, of course, is is what this passage is most well-known for. Uh, I bring all of this up because uh, a common retelling of this story, which perhaps you may have heard before, uh, especially by those who attack Christianity, uh, make it sound like, you know, Elisha's just this, this grumpy prophet who gets offended, you know, by these sweet, innocent little children who all they've done is just poke fun at his hair. And so in his anger, he vindictively calls upon two she-bears to rip them apart. Now, I'm not saying that this is an, an easy text to wrestle with, or that, you know, there's, that, that there is this one-liner answer that, that I can give to you to just dismiss people who bring this up. It, it is genuinely difficult. It's a hard thing for us 
to read and hear. But it is helpful for us to put this event in its proper context. And it's important, as it is with all of Scripture, for us to keep looking, to keep going and pressing deeper into what it says and what it means. You see, these boys, they weren't simply just teasing Elisha. It wasn't like a a playful thing that they were doing. This was a rejection of the Lord's prophet. And in so doing, it is a rejection of the Lord Himself. Deuteronomy 18, 19 instructs Israel about God's prophets, saying, Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my, my name, I myself will require it of them. Meaning, I, I myself, I the Lord, will hold him accountable, will hold every single one who does not listen to my prophets accountable. He holds all of his people accountable. Translation, when my prophets speak, I speak. And so this taunt that the boys engaged in was, was more than just about teasing Elisha because he was bold and that was funny. Firstly, this was, this was a, a jeer that dishonored the prophet because of his boldness. You know, there may have been cultural and religious reasons why that wasn't just a light thing. But secondly, and more importantly, when they say, go up here, it's most likely referring to the news that Elijah had been taken up by a whirlwind. So again, last week, that is what we heard. And it's actually been a few days since that event now. And so you can imagine that the news had probably traveled to Bethel, especially because there is a company of prophets that are there in this city and, so, and we know, obviously, that Elijah had a reputation in Israel, and so it's not inconceivable that news about him being taken up in a whirlwind would have been quickly spread. And so these boys, when they say, go up, Elisha, they're mocking him, telling him to just to get out of here, to go the same way as your spiritual father. And that is a rejection of the Lord via a rejection of his prophet. Where do you think these boys learned to do that from? Where do you think they got the idea that that would be okay to do, despite the warning we've just read about in Deuteronomy? Surely from their parents and surely from the other adults in the town. In this epicenter of idol worship, the children have learned the ways of their parents. That's instructive for us, isn't it? Last week, we were encouraged to think about and consider how it is that we we are passing on the torch of the gospel and God's word to the next generation, just as Elijah had done for Elisha. Well, this week, in this passage... We are considering the opposite side of that coin. This here this morning is a warning about what happens when we neglect our duty to do so. And again, having our kids in with us this morning in the gathering is a good reminder of this. Now, I'm not suggesting that that a right upbringing guarantees faith. 
Okay, the Bible never promises that, that if you, if you do the right thing, if you, if you raise your children well, if you teach them, say the right things, then they, they are guaranteed to grow up and know the Lord. But it certainly does emphasize that the community of faith has a responsibility to instruct the next generation. If you're taking notes, which I encourage you to, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 are good examples of this. And we've also, also already seen in our preaching through Kings, bad examples of this, where it has led to idolatry. Ahaziah, in, in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, and his, was taught by his father Ahab to be evil, and he followed in those footsteps. And so, brothers and sisters, let me remind us today, this isn't just a responsibility of parents. Yes, parents absolutely have a primary role in this. But just as we read in our covenant this morning, just a few minutes ago, one of our commitments to one another is in the raising and in the instruction of the children in our church. Have a look around. Have a look at the children who are sitting next to you, in the room, in other places, on the floor, at the tables. These are the children that the Lord has placed in your life to instruct, to nurture, to disciple. Have you considered how, how you might be able to do that? Obviously, a couple of straightforward ways, helping with Praise Factory is one way you can do that. Or sitting with kids when they're in the gathering, like this, or with us at lunch, that's another way. But have you considered other ways? Parents, have you considered how this responsibility might not, uh, extends not just to your own children? Have you considered the fact that God's call to you as, as an adult instructing children is not just for your own kids, but for those in your church. Have you thought about how it could actually be a blessing to the members in our church who don't have kids to enfold them into your lives, perhaps even in the weekly routine of it? And no, not just when you're in desperate need, like when your wife's going into labor, but as an intentional way of forming discipling relationships with other members and, with, and, and by providing more discipling opportunities with your kids. And how great would it be for the members in our church to be, to be aunties and uncles and grandparents of our kids? especially given that most of us don't have biological family here in Darwin. Members without kids or who have adult kids who don't live here in Darwin, have you thought about ways that you could offer help to parents or, or perhaps create opportunities in your week so that you can spend time with them, with the kids? I know that we can't just suddenly make this happen. It's not something that is the norm in our culture. 
And also, we need to be wise and careful about these things with children, especially in our day and age. That's why we have child protection policies at our church. That's why we encourage all of us to be protective and watchful of our kids. It absolutely takes time, trust, and more time, and more trust. But I hope and I pray that we would seek to carry this out to the best of our ability. At the very least, let's commit this in prayer and let's begin the conversations. Kids, feel free to encourage your parents to talk about this, about how you can spend more time with Uncle Scotty. Our children, our church, and ultimately our city will be blessed by this. As we become a witness to the broader community of how gospel-shaped community takes its cues from the Lord and from His Word and not from our broader culture. How I long to see this in our church. Well, the boys of Bethel get a response from Elisha. Let's read verse 24. And he turned around, and when he saw them, He cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. This is, as I already said, a sobering passage. Now, just one quick translation note. The word tore there may not mean necessarily killing the boys. That is possible that we're talking about bad, bad injury and scratching. But either way, uh, it, is, it is probably likely that it is referring to killing them. And it reminds us, yet again, of the holiness of God and the seriousness of disobedience to Him. In Leviticus 26, God lays out terms of His covenant with Israel, His agreement with them, which begins with a commandment to not make idols and false gods of worship. And He then lays out promises of blessing for obedience. If you are to do this, you will be blessed. But then in the second half of Leviticus 26, it pivots to what happens to Israel when they don't obey. And the Lord talks about various curses that come as a result of that disobedience. And one of those is found in verse 22, which is extremely relevant to our passage. I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. The land which was promised to the Israelites would be cursed in their disobedience, even the wild beasts. And so in our passage this morning in 2 Kings 2, Elisha's curse that is pronounced on the boys as a, is a specific application of the idolatry of the people of Bethel. The consequences of the boys' own rejection of the Lord and the parents' rejection of the Lord is Elisha's curse. 
Now, I say Elisha's curse, but only in the sense that he was the agent through which it was delivered. Ultimately, this is a covenant curse, one that has come about because instead of keeping the vows of faithfulness to the Lord that Israel made, the commitment that they made to him to keep his commandments, they instead became idolaters, turned away to false gods, worshipped other gods instead of the Lord. Why does God do this? Well, look at the very next verse in Leviticus of chapter 26, 20, verse 23. If by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me. Do you see that? God's desire in, in all of these actions is always that his wayward people would turn back to him and walk with him and worship him. Why? Because he is the God who is worthy and deserving of that worship. To worship another God is not just disobedient to him, it is sin, it is wrong. And this is a a hard thing for us to grasp. Because we're we're bombarded with, with a lack of appreciation for the holiness of God. And find it difficult to reconcile his righteous judgment on unholiness. As R.C. Sproul tweeted out in 2015, the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And who are unholy people? All of us, of course. You are, I am, every single person who has ever lived except Jesus. And this is why becoming a Christian is such a dramatic turnaround in the heart. Because we we no longer hate or fear the holiness of God, but by His grace we love and we strive for it. These boys, they received God's holy judgment. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this kind of judgment, nor would it be the last. Despite the warnings... Despite these things being a warning to the people of Israel, they continued on in their stubbornness of heart. And yet, I am so thankful that the Lord is patient and kind and that He disciplines those He loves and that time and time again, As Psalm 103.10 says, He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Have you responded to the Lord's kindness, His patience, and perhaps even His severity and His judgment in repentance and in faith? Has pain or difficulty or the consequences of your own sin caught up with you? How have you responded? Friend, if you're here this morning, if you haven't turned from your sin, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, then I urge you to do so today. Do not wait until tomorrow. Well, another group of people also experienced 
the Lord's discipline in a much milder way. And that brings us to our second group, the doubters. The doubters. Let's rewind a little. Let's go back to the very beginning of our passage. Remember that uh, these 50 disciples, or these sons of prophets, they stood some distance off from Elisha and Elijah after they'd crossed the Jordan River, somewhere roughly around there. I couldn't fit 50 of them in to the picture, but that'll give you an idea of where they were when Elijah, when the dramatic ascension of Elijah into heaven happened. So we don't know exactly what they saw, but it seems pretty clear from what we're about to read that they at least saw the whirlwind which took Elijah up to heaven. And so while these sons of prophets last week uh, seems to show that they lacked a bit of EQ, as you might remember, they're a bit insensitive, they seem to lack a bit of emotional intelligence, well, this time they seem to lack IQ, that is, actual intelligence. Let's read from verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. You shall not send. Remember last week that Elisha asked for a double portion from Elijah, Elijah, basically asking if he could be the the firstborn head prophet, the one who would carry on the mantle and be prophet in Elijah's place. Well, God granted that request. And here, the the sons of the prophets recognize that, don't they? The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, the same Holy Spirit that energized and mobilized Elijah and set him apart as God's prophet, now rests on Elisha. I'm sure seeing Elisha uh, whack the water with Elijah's cloak the same way that Elijah did and parting the waters was one of the reasons that they were able to see this truth. And they showed that recognition in their actions by bowing before him, an act of respect and reverence that was usually reserved for leaders and kings. And yet, despite this genuine recognition, this this genuine ability to see the truth, we see perhaps not the brightest moment of these disciples. Elisha, we brought a search party. I mean, God might have dropped Elijah somewhere. You never know, right? Let's go and look for him. Now, it's easy for us as people observing the story who get, you know, little narrator's notes about things going on behind the scenes to pass judgment on the apparent lack of smarts that these disciples had. There's nothing quite like an armchair critic Uh, which I think encapsulates perfectly why we're so easily blinded by our own sin. But we do need to give these guys some leniency. You see, Christians don't find the idea of a body ascending into the heavens to be with God such a foreign one, because we know that that's what happened with Jesus' own body after God raised Him from the dead. But you've got to remember, 
That's what happened, uh, sorry, this has only happened once before with Enoch, which Genesis 5.24 tells us about. And there it doesn't mention a whirlwind, right? And Hebrews 11.5 also talks about Enoch, specifically mentioning that he was not found. And so it may well be that these sons of prophets had that going on in the back of their minds, that maybe Enoch wasn't found even though people looked for him, and maybe he wasn't found because nobody looked for him, so we should look for him. So even though Elisha knew that Elijah was not going to be found anywhere, even though we know that what actually happened, we need to realize that these guys, they had never seen anything like this. They had never seen a body go up in a whirlwind. I mean, I've, I've never seen that either. I'm pretty sure most of us haven't. Yeah, it's also likely that these disciples, they were just wondering if, uh, not just necessarily wondering if Elijah could be found alive somewhere, but that they were actually hoping to simply recover his body so that they could give him a proper burial. Uh, I think that's probably why we're told that there were strong men in the search party. And so, interestingly, despite the fact that these guys all truly believe that Elisha is God's prophet, they know that he speaks the truth, how do they respond when he says no to their request? Let's read verse 17. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. They urged him till he was ashamed, till he was embarrassed, to the point where Elisha says, man, you guys aren't going to give this up, are you? It feels to me a little bit like that stereotypical nag from kids till they get what they want. You know what I'm saying? Kids, do any of you do that to your parents? That kind of, you know, I want to do this, 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 I want to do this. Let me eat chocolate, let me eat chocolate, let me eat chocolate, let me eat chocolate. Try to press them and press them for what you want, thinking that they'll eventually give in. Well, right here is an example of why that's usually a bad idea. Especially if they're telling you something from God's Word. This group of a of hundred or so guys who actually believe that Elisha is the prophet, well, they decide not to accept the Word from the prophet's mouth. How, think about that for a second. How do you end up in that position? How do you end up, how is it possible that these guys could profess to believe one thing and then act in a completely different way? You know, instead of actually recognizing what they've just said about Elisha, they, they press him and they urge him and they press him and they say, Elisha, just let us go. We know you're probably right, but we still want to do what we want. And maybe because Elisha still had training wheels on as a head prophet, I mean, he only just become the head prophet. More probably because he knew that this would eventually be a learning opportunity for these guys. He relented and he let them search. 
And for three days they search. Surprise, surprise. Nothing. What's the result? Let's look at verse 18. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Elisha had gone on to Jericho and here he is when they come, gives them a pretty decent sized, I told you so. One thing's for sure, you can bet that these guys probably wouldn't have doubted Elisha again. Elisha called it from the start and he was proven right by a fruitless three-day manhunt. And you know, once again, it would be easy for us to look at these guys and to think, gosh, they're a bit daft, aren't they? And yet, isn't that us? Have you stopped to consider how many things you say you believe, but when it comes time to act in line with it, you do something completely different or do the complete opposite of it? Well, one of the tests of that is right here in our passage. When God says no, how do you respond? When God says something in His Word that leads you in a direction that you don't like or calls you to believe something that seems grossly unfair or just plain difficult, how do you respond? Do you urge him and do you press him? Do you try to convince him that maybe he's wrong? That maybe he he doesn't realize that your idea is better? I mean, this this is most obvious in matters of sin. Our wrestle with sin and striving for holiness is something that is part of the Christian life. And our church seeks to encourage each other in that regularly. I've already given us two different John Owen quotes about killing sin in my past sermons. So I'm not going to give you another one, as tempting as it would be. But what about matters where you actually feel like you're doing the right thing? You see, these disciples, they they weren't trying to disobey God, were they? If anything, they were seeking to do something that was a noble and an honorable thing. It was a good thing. But their mistake was that in their zeal to carry out something good and honorable, they took their eyes off the one they were doing it for, the very one who directed and guided them in what they should be doing. And when God said no to them through Elisha, they didn't like that. They pressed, they urged. In the face of God's Word, they doubted it and they pushed ahead with their own plans. 
And so, friends, even if something you desire is a good thing, consider, do you stop to pray and take stock and check and seek Scripture and seek godly counsel and search your own heart to see whether you are still submitting to the Lord's will in it? Or has it become something that you cannot let go of? Has it become something that you will press God about until He gives you what you want? Even if that's a good thing. Sadly, I think this happens with us all the time. It happens when Christians and churches have a right desire to see many one to Christ. But it causes them to reimagine church without looking to Scripture as their guide, which then morphs it into something that, that serves a good desire to see the gospel proclaimed, to see people come to Christ, but has now neglected or sidelined or demoted God's word because of it. The good end has justified the means. It happens to us when, when God leads us down a certain path, whether that is through His Word or through circumstances or through counsel from others or perhaps a prompt by His Spirit, and we're convinced that this must be what God wants. And so we latch onto that, thinking that if we can just attain this goal, then we will have achieved God's will, and slowly but surely it becomes the focus and we take our eyes off God. We forget to keep assessing our plans and actions by the word. We forget to keep surrendering them to God in prayer and saying, Lord, your will be done. Just as Jesus taught us to pray. When it gets to that point, it is no longer your will be done. But it is make what was your will, but has now become my will be done. This is what pressing and urging God without continually surrendering to Him looks like. Where is that true for you? Where is it true in your personal life? In your home life? At work? In your relationships? In your family? Where does a certain desire or goal or task, which very well may be a very good and godly one, need to again be submitted to the Lord's ways and to the Lord's word? Perhaps you might need to go to, to do that by going deeper in the word. Remember, this is a, it's a treasure trove that we will keep diving into for the rest of our lives. Maybe you need to revisit parts of it that you're familiar with but haven't applied to a particular situation. Perhaps you need to speak to a brother or sister and seek advice about how to apply that to your situation. Brothers and sisters, let us not doubt. Let us not doubt the goodness, the gold, and the guidance of God's Word. Let us not think that we can grab all we need to live as Christians by, by simply just getting the basics, by simply just getting, okay, that's where I need to go, and then surviving on that. We need to keep looking back to the Word, keep hearing what He has to say throughout our lives, and by His grace, by His marvelous, wonderful grace, 
He will continue to do that in our hearts through His Spirit who works powerfully within us as we press deeper, not into our own wills, but God's. Well, these groups of delinquents and doubters aren't particularly encouraging, are they? They show us, they remind us, they hold up a mirror to us of where we have and continue to fall short. And that is the true state of all of us, which is why we need a hope. It's why we need a saviour. And that brings us to our final cluster of people, the dwellers. So now the stage is set. Elisha is in Jericho. He's just shown and proven how he is God's head prophet. And this sign in Jericho that we're about to read serves as the first of two that are like two sides of the same coin, which again affirm and confirm Elisha's authority as prophet. Elisha here performs a sign of great blessing in Jericho. And of course, as we just we heard a few minutes ago, one of the severe curse in Bethel. And in many ways, that, that contrast is probably intentional to show those two different sides. And the way that the men of the city approach Elisha here is entirely different to the Bethel boys. Let's read verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. It looks pretty, but there is no substance. That is the very definition of everything made by Apple. Sorry, Apple fans. And a lot of social media. You know, the men come to Elisha and they say, Jericho is a beautiful place to live, but what, what kind of sucks is the fact that the water is almost undrinkable and we can't grow any food. You'd think they were talking about Adelaide. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, my Adelaide friends. The water really is undrinkable in Adelaide. Some have drawn a connection from here to the curse that Joshua pronounces on Jericho in Joshua 6.26. You may be familiar with it. But because this specific curse is on the person who rebuilds Jericho and not the city itself, I tend to think that this is actually more about the general covenant curses for Israel's disobedience. If you're taking notes, once again, uh, which of course I encourage you to do, check out Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 15 to 19 in your own time, especially verse 18. You'll see how, how very um, accurate this description maps onto that. The dwellers of Jericho, they let Elisha know about this problem of the water and the land, probably because they know that he's a prophet and that if he's anything like Elijah, then he's going to be able to do something about it. So what does Elijah do? Elisha do? Let's read from verse 20. He said, Bring me a, bo- a new bowl and put salt in it. 
So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now, salt was used in purification and offerings, uh, like in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. And that's probably the kind of image that Elisha is going for here, ritual purification. But a crucial thing for us to remember as we think about and reflect on this is that as Christians, we don't believe in relics. That is to say, we don't believe in objects that, that carry some kind of special power that God invests into the object itself. Yes, God uses objects like Paul's handkerchief in Acts, but it is never the object itself that has the power. Our passage this morning makes that clear. The 50 prophets in Jericho, when they saw Elisha come back over after whacking the water with Elijah's cloak, you know, they don't suddenly go after the cloak thinking, this thing's going to be magical and amazing. No, they recognize that the Spirit of God was at work through Elisha. And in the same way here, look at what Elisha says in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. Who's the one who heals the water? The Lord. The Lord is the one who is the agent behind that change. And so friends, it is only Him who can heal. It is only Him who can give you life-giving water that will bring life to arid soil and make the ground produce fruit. Don't look to anything. Don't trust in anything else. There is nothing special about certain buildings or places where great pe people of faith once walked or where there's a great spiritual history. Being baptized in the Jordan River isn't more spiritual and, and doesn't somehow make you more Christian. You don't have to do a tour of Jerusalem to feel close to Jesus. The Lord healed the water at Jericho by working through Elisha. It brought life to that city, and it brought life to that land. It is the Lord who heals, and He is everywhere present by His Spirit. And you know, He's still in the business of bringing life. He's still in the business of giving life-giving water. When Jesus went through Samaria many centuries later, he would meet a woman caught in adultery and he would begin a conversation with her that would change her life. John 4.14 4 says, For whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Tell me something. Would you rather live in a pleasant city that has death water in it or in the middle of a desert with an endless supply 
of life-giving water and food. The reality is that while one is nice for a short time, it won't last very long at all. You'll appreciate it for a moment and then it will be over. And even though the other one might be difficult and hot, perhaps filled with suffering and persecution, it is real life. So it is with Jesus. The woman he met at the well looked for real life in her former five husbands and in her current partner. And Jesus came and showed her that life is found only in him. Friends, ask yourself, is it really worth seeking to live in the pleasant city that will ultimately result in your death? Is it really worth it to have all the great things and to die? Is it really worth gaining the whole world and yet losing your soul? It sounds like a no-brainer decision, doesn't it? And yet how often do we spend and invest so much of our lives into making pleasant cities for ourselves instead of feeding our souls with living water? Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Whoever drinks of the water that Jesus gives, it results in a spring of water that wells up into eternal life. Jesus calls you this morning to leave behind your dirty, stagnant water and to come to him and to drink from the fountain of eternal life. Turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in him and live no longer for the pleasant city which brings no life. For the city which will never satisfy. Look to him, the one who gives water that will well up as a spring of eternal life and will satisfy eternally. You see, all of our strivings would be fruitless, would be bound for failure without this well. To reject idolatry, to train and disciple our kids, to actually live in line with what we profess to believe, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, continuing to hear his word in every circumstance, all of that would be impossible without the living water of life that Jesus gives. Do you saturate yourself in his life-giving words? When you read Scripture, do you, do you seek to engage your whole heart, your whole soul, your mind, your strength? Do you read it knowing that these are the very words of God? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. Some people like to read so many chapters every day. I would not dissuade them from the practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day, 
then rinse my hand in several, cha- in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of Scripture and to let it be sucked up in your very soul till it saturates your heart. Now, for me, at the moment, I am reading a few chapters a day. But whatever your practice of reading Scripture, this posture is one we all ought to take up. This is life-giving water. God's Word is life-giving water. Why? Why would you keep trying to subsist on a mosquito-infested water tank? You know, we don't actually hear how the dwellers of Jericho responded to God healing the water. We can speculate that their response would have been favorable and maybe a few of them turned back to God. But I wanted to finish with them for that reason. To leave it open-ended for us to consider our own response. In light of all that you've seen and all that you've heard From God's word this morning, how will you respond? We've seen how the delinquents followed in the footsteps of their fathers and they rejected the Lord. Don't be like them. We've seen how the doubters believed one thing, but doubted God's word and sought to press their own will over God's. Don't be like them. Keep surrendering your plans to the Lord. And the dwellers recognize that only the Lord could bring healing. Just as a Samaritan woman came to see that only Jesus could bring life-giving water. Be like them. And respond to God's generous gift of salvation through the giving of His Son and the sending of His Spirit. Respond to Him in praise, in adoration, and in worship. Friends, look to Christ alone. Because only He brings life. Only He has living water. How will you respond to God's word this morning? Let's pray. Father, open up our hearts. Open up our minds, our souls. To respond to you, to respond to your word, and to respond to the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.